The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Stephen Lang. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Stephen is currently starring in the show Beyond Glory, which is playing at the Roundabout Theatre here in New York. Previously to this, Stephen has many credits. Let me just read a few of them from Playbill. Defiance, John Patrick Shanley's show, The Speed of Darkness, Finishing the Picture by Arthur Miller, A Few Good Men by Aaron Sorkin, also Hamlet at the Roundabout, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, many movies, many television shows. Stephen, let's talk about your present show, the off-Broadway production of Beyond Glory. Sure. How did that show come about, and how did you get into it? Well, uh, back in May of '03, I was, um, uh, it was a Sunday morning, I was about to begin a basketball game that we play every Sunday morning for years, and uh, I was lacing on my sneakers, and I uh, asked one of my buddies, Larry Smith, basketball buddy, oh, what you been doing, Larry, since retirement? And he said, I've written a book. And um, I was curious about it. He told me it was called Beyond Glory. It was going to come out in a couple of months. It was about the Medal of Honor subject that interested me and it interested me the fact that this guy who I really knew just as this sort of scrappy defender on the basketball court was a journalist of note which I I didn't know anyway uh, he gave me a copy the next week uncorrected copy and I read it that day and it just floored me and I guess and I think that I was I was looking around for for something to uh, to do, you know, th- that would maybe call upon some more resources than just, me- not merely, but but solely my acting skills. I mean, I'd been acting for a long, long, long time, and I felt a lot of other maybe resources I had had gotten dormant. Anyway, uh, the book just knocked me out, and it seemed the stories that these men told, it was firsthand accounts of living Medal of Honor recipients from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And uh, the stories, the voices of the men were so unvarnished, so authentic, and so dramatic that it just naturally began to evolve. I think probably I, well, I'm sure I began reading it aloud. And that was the first. (laughs) That was my first mistake. (laughs) And then after that, I began just noodling with the work and trying to take these 20, 25-page chapters, interviews, and kind of make them into a bullion cube of drama. And, um, and, and I did that with piece after piece in there, and uh, eventually Beyond Glory emerged. Well, the book, as I understand it, has over 20 different Medal of Honor winners who are included. You winnowed that down in adapting the piece. How did you decide amongst the stories, all of which presumably are as remarkable as those that made it into the play? Well, that's a very good question. I have done treatments on men. There, I believe there were 23 or 24 uh, uh, interviews in the book. I and I have done treatments on over half of them, but only eight have made it into Beyond Glory, really because of the. There's it seems to me that there's a suitable and a perfect length for a solo show, and there's only so far I can go, you know. But in any case, um, I wanted to have a diversity of services, a diversity of war, a diversity of ethnicities represented. I really wanted to do as cross section because these guys are so 
uh, so different, so very, very different in, in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds, the geographic where they're from, uh, the color of their skin, uh, and of course the services and the wars they fought. So that really went went into it. I needed pieces that really complemented uh, each other. Now the book itself is relatively recent. But the guys, obviously, that it chronicles, as you said, World War II, Korea, these are all much older men looking back on their lives. As you started to develop the piece, were you tempted or did you, in fact, choose to meet them yourself? I uh, Originally, I, I made a, no choice either way. They are pretty far-flung. You know, they're, they're all over the, the country. And actually, none of the guys I represent are in this immediate area. One, Hector Caffarad, a Marine, is from Jersey, but I believe he's down in Florida and now as well. of course, Admiral Stockdale has passed away. Well, he hadn't at the point. At that point. Oh, really? No, he died in 05, and mm-hmm. I began on the show. This was all, all the fellows were uh, were alive, and, and seven of the eight still are, but uh, Admiral Stockdale passed away in uh, 05. Um, but, so, I, it was kind of circumstantial in a way that I didn't meet them, but Practically speaking, what I was doing, what I am doing, is an extremely impressionistic kind of a piece. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how useful it would have been from perhaps their point of view as well. I mean, I play Vernon Baker, who is, at this point, Vernon Baker, he's born in 1919, so what, that makes him 88 years old right now, and he's a black man. And for me to go up to Mr. Baker and say, hello, I'm Stephen Lang, and I'm going to be playing you on stage, it would be at the very least disconcerting for him, you know, and would require a lot of explanation. The truth of the matter is, if you see the piece, then it makes a... Con- uh, in context, it makes sense, I think. But without it, it's just become something that you explain, and I think probably explain inadequately. So... I did not go out of my way to 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 meet the fellows. I will say that they're so strongly and specifically represented in the book that I felt <laughs> that covered it in a lot of ways. But you make physical choices, you make vocal choices. Mm-hmm. Um, are those completely your impression of them, or did you in fact go back? I assume that the author of the book had tapes of these guys. I didn't listen to tapes. I've, had, no. I've heard some of them because I watched the History Channel and Medal of Honor recipients uh, um, tend to be on uh, occasionally. So I have heard them, but no. I thought, again, the voices were so clear in that book that, that and this is my, this is my impression, hmm. this is them filtered through me. I'm channeling these guys to the best of my ability. Huh. Well, the book itself has photographs of the men, uh-huh. both back then when they won the medal and currently. Yeah. Did that influence your, your interpretation of them, finding the character, finding the voice? Well, everything in, in, uh, in influenced me. And just before we go on, I'm going to just administer a very polite correction, uh-huh. which is to say that um, the fellas themselves um, do not care to be identified as winners of the Medal of mm-hmm. Honor. They're more properly recipients. Uh, and I think the rationale behind that is, you know, the medal is presented 70, 
uh, 70% of the time posthumously. Yeah, and you're not competing for a prize. No, you're not. It's... Exactly. You win the lottery. You, <laughs> you are awarded the Medal of Honor. So it's a very common mistake, and it's made in the military mm-hmm. constantly, but it, it's how they preferred to be designated. Um, but sure, a lot of things contributed, uh, the, the, the pictures, the photos among them, um, but uh, certainly their own descriptions of what they went through, the uh, the wounds that they endured, that they live with, that all went into uh, kind of building these uh, portraits. The show is being performed now in New York. It's been performed elsewhere. It's been performed in Chicago with the Goodman. Mm-hmm. It was performed in Washington, D.C. The first performance was right outside of Arlington Cemetery. And you also took the show overseas to our, our uh, service people currently serving in various locations. Indeed. What sort of reactions have you had f- from the different audiences and the, the veterans and the current people in, in the military? Well, the military, first of all, when you go to Bahrain or Kuwait or uh, Guam and and perform for the troops, the first thing they are expressing is appreciation just for having made the journey. They love to be cared for. They love to be paid attention to. Now, a piece like this, which is uh, um, neither pro-military or anti-military, neither pro-war nor anti-war, it's an examination of the phenomenon of war. Um, they have a very deep appreciation um, for it. And, uh, and uh, many, many times uh, fellows would come up to me after the show and say that, in their own words, would say that it served as a reminder of why they had joined up in the first place. And that's very gratifying. Now, at least one Medal of Honor recipient, Senator Inouye, has seen the show. Have others seen it? And what sort of reactions have you gotten from him and from the others? Well, many Medal of Honor recipients have seen the show, but not the guys who I represent. Some of them have seen it multiple times. They're quite they're, they're in favor of it. Um, we did a special performance uh, at the U.S. Senate for Senator Inouye's birthday. I think he was turning 80. And um, he, he, um, it, was a, it was an extraordinary experience for myself to perform Inouye for Inouye. He was visibly moved by it, and he told me that he wished his father could have attended. So it was a, it was a very gratifying, again, experience. Have you ever yourself been in the military? No, I haven't. What, I what kind of impact has this had on you personally? Well, it's given me a a deep, uh, just the process of doing this, because, you know, I'm an actor, which is essentially a, quite a reactive profession, and, and this is something that I built. And, uh, you know, when I started in 03, it was just me. And now there have been literally hundreds of people who have contributed to working on this show in every area. And that, to me, has been a very, very, uh, I think, uh, a great lesson in humility. Just the, I'm talking about the process mm-hmm. now of doing, of doing the show, of, 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 of building something, controlling it, and then allowing other people to contribute as well, to contribute their visions to it at all. It's been an extremely uh, gratifying and liberating experience for me and a great learning experience. In terms of the material, of course, it's been just eye-opening. It's given me a new perspective on what really is, constitutes a problem in one's life. I mean, these guys have dealt with such uh, adversity in such a... uh, with such fortitude, you know, and such humility that 
I do the show so much, I'm so intimately bound up in it that it can't help but have, I think, a positive effect on me. Just to make it very clear to our our listeners, not only are you the actor on stage portraying these eight men, you have also uh, written the show based on Larry Smith's book. You've adapted the book for the stage. Indeed. To make that very clear, so you are very close to it. To do a work that is about the military at a time of war certainly would seem to have its own political overtones. The work itself simply presents the stories of these guys, but you talked a moment ago about the reaction from those in the military that you've been able to present it for. I'm curious as to how audiences and, frankly, others in the theatrical community have responded to it because theater is thought by many to, to lean towards the liberal side of things, and and certainly there's a lot of unpopularity right now on where we are with where our military is. Mm-hmm. What's, what's been the reaction as you've told these stories, admittedly, from, from previous conflicts? Well, let me start with an example, a, a brief story. The first workshop performance I ever did of uh, Beyond Glory was at my artistic home, the Actors Studio. Now, you're not going to find a crustier bunch of lefties, uh, you know, by and large, than the studio. I mean, the studio comes out of, you know, uh, Piscator and the uh, the group theater. I mean, really, you know, kind of a revolutionary uh, theater. And, of course, I had my, I, you know, I had had my doubts. <laughs> How is this going to be received? And it was it. It gave me such confidence and such um, such a, a shot in the arm that they they got it. They saw that this was an examination of of this was drama. This was conflict. This was not endorsing anything at all. Uh, so so that gave me great um, uh, hope for its future. I think, and I and I and I will say that the audiences have, by and large, been just spectacularly appreciative uh, of it. The it's interesting that I I feel that once they're in the theater, it takes care of itself, as it were. I mean, the show speaks for itself. But when you see a play advertised called Beyond Glory. Here, eight Medal of Honor recipients in their own words. I think it can, you know, you can make a judgment about it right away. It's, uh, no, no, I'm not, I, that's not for me. But it's not, and, and so uh, one of the reasons that uh, going out and speaking about it is so uh, important, so vital to the show, is that it, you, it gives you a chance to disabuse people of that notion because it really is not. It does, of course, you're going to bring in your, as a, as a thinking uh, citizen, you're going to bring in your uh, thoughts, your opinions, your leanings on, uh, on everything when you, when, you, when, you, when you come in to see it. And, um, and of course, it does have ramifications in terms of the present conflict. There's no question of that. But those are for you to kind of debate with your whoever you're seeing it with, it seems to me, after the, the play is not going to come to any conclusions about right or wrong, should we, shouldn't we. Uh, it's just going to examine the conflict. So looking at this from a different perspective, you've we've already talked about all of the places you've been able to play the show. When you took it upon yourself to create this work, you said the first step was just doing it at the actor's studio. 
you ultimately were either seeking producers or seeking to produce it yourself. What was the response? How did you go about creating the opportunity for this show to be seen? The Well, truthfully, I took it as really uh, uh, one foot in front of the other. The idea of a production was when I was doing a reading, the reading was what was important. When I was going to work on a character in session at the studio, that particular piece of work was important. In November of 03, I did do, I had memorized the show, No Small Feet, mm-hmm. and, and, and was going to do a, at the Playwright Director's Unit, which is a Monday night unit at the studio, a, uh, a complete, um, uh, not a read-through because I knew it, but I was going to do the piece. And we had a, we had a good full house. And people who had been uh, in on it, which is to say had heard me do parts of it or uh, who were just, a, just aware of it, um, they came that night, so it was a. And after the show, after the the performance, as it were, I received uh, a couple of offers for mm. productions right away, and I I weighed them. One was in New York, actually, and one was um, down in uh, Washington. And I thought this is the right thing to do is to start this down there. As the actor, as the adapter, at what point did a director come into this? for you because certainly when something is so much your baby bringing someone else in to suggest mm-hmm. to you is is an important part of the process well what i did was in uh after i had i had a pretty firm grounding in in or somewhat firm in what i was doing i decided to do a process where i invited three directors to 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 run <clears throat> to be in charge for 3 days each and uh, one was Tom DeChillo, the noted film director. One was Peter Maloney, who's a superb actor and director studio. And um, and one was, um, I believe it was Daryl Larson. I'm sorry, I'm just a little foggy on things. And I just put myself in their hands. I just said, this is not mine anymore. Uh, this for these three days because I just wanted to glean anything I could from anyone. Mm-hmm. And then and they were. They gave me their time so graciously, and we did this privately at the studio. And then when that was done, and I had kind of gotten, just having gone through that process, having made the choice to do that, was in itself a helpful thing to me. And then I directed it. It was a self-directed piece in Arlington. It was a self-directed piece in um in Chicago, my producers in Washington were Tribute Productions, which is my sister's production company, and she is a strong, smart uh, uh, woman who I have a wonderful collaborative process with. So I took what she said very seriously. The designers who came aboard were first rate. I took what they said very seriously, but the direction was was mine. Then, and the same was true in Chicago, although Bob Falls, who's the artistic director and the one who said, let's do this in the first place at the Goodman, was kind enough to come into several rehearsals and to be very specific. He knows my work very, very well, and I have absolute faith in his, him as a director. And so there were changes that were made. There were tweaks that were made uh, um, according to what Bob said. And then coming to New York is a different story, really, because um, I think that um, I think I felt the need. I wanted to give the the show its best shot, you know. And the truth of the matter is, I don't know that I can act and direct. I don't know if I can be my best at either. 
if I'm doing both. And so Bob, who had an intimate connection with the show already, uh, consented to come aboard as as director. And so before we came to New York, um, we went into rehearsal again at the Goodman, and uh, we rehearsed together, and Bob was very, very, you know, he took it. He didn't eliminate what what was good, what worked and everything, but he really, he really winnowed it out. He made me be very honest. He did not allow me to indulge. He insisted there were certain writing moments in it that while he understood why he, they were there, he, he felt really needed to be examined. There were places where he felt there should be more writing. So he really had a very, very um, significant impact. So the, 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 the nature of the changes included reworking parts of the show, reworking parts of the, of the show. The, the ending re-working. was completely reworked. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and, and yes, w- within characters, there have been significant things that were eliminated some of them interesting i mean if you want to like hear one of them um sure. say because this relates to the politics of the thing at one point vernon baker says right at the end of his vernon baker was a member of the 92nd the uh, the buffalo division in, in right? world war 2 in world war 2 he 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 really had a career that where there was he really dealt with institutionalized racism uh for, for, for a long, long, long time. And he does say, and he had been commissioned a second lieutenant in 43. In 47, when his commission expired, he re-upped, but in order to stay in, he had to go down to master sergeant. Now, that's not an unusual thing, because when you begin to demob, you need less officers. A lot of guys who had been breveted up, you know, you don't they, they don't need that many. But the fact is, it He'd he'd given great service, so he's going down to Master Sergeant. And he says, I had to go down to Master Sergeant. I have no complaints. And then I used to have in there where he explains, he says, look, I saw a lot of prejudice fall by the wayside. This was the only country I had, and I felt in my heart that things would get better, that America, the United States, was growing up. Look at Colin Powell. So, and that is a character note to me, you know, to, and it's a very legitimate character note there. He comes from a generation. Can you imagine for this guy who, who joined up and really took it on the chin to see Colin Powell become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs? I mean, extraordinary thing. At the same time, Colin Powell carries, when you walk into that theater, carries a certain amount of uh, uh, baggage right now. To me, it was worth it because it, it, it really informed his, uh, Vernon Baker's viewpoint. And Bob understood that, but he said it's not worth it. It's not worth it to keep that in there. If it takes people out just for one second, you have written a show that is, that is leached of politics. So let's keep it that way. And even though I love the lines, you know, I felt this was the only country I had, uh, I, I said, you're right, and it had to go. So that's, a, that's an example of his effect on the show. Mm. As we move off of specifically Beyond Glory to talk about the rest of your career, it's an inevitable question. You have, in some of your best-known performances, both on stage and on film and television, you have played military men of many stripes over the course of your career. 
why do you think they're offered to you, or why do you accept them? Well, I'll accept any role that that interests me if it's a uh, uh, you know if it, if it's got some depth and grit to it. I think why I'm offered them. I think one thing tends to lead to another to some extent, and um, I, I don't know. I mean, there, maybe there's a perception out there that I know how to that my posture is good, or that <laughs> you know that I know how to bark in order, or that I uh, that that there seems to be a, a sense of discipline and rigor to 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 what I do. And the truth is, I have played many military roles, but I've certainly played. Lots of other kind of oh, wastrels. Of course, but too. when we look at, sure. say, Jessup in yeah. Few Good Men, or more recently, your role in in John Patrick Shanley's right. Defiance, you know, you've it, it's certainly something that seems to come up over and over. Well, you know, I mean, geez. Walter Brennan was playing codgers from the time he was 30, you know what I mean? And uh, um, so I, I guess you do, to some extent, get thought of in, in some way. If I ever felt that I was, you know, there have been military roles I've turned down as well. So, But does it, infor- it, does it inform your perception of the military? Or as you said, you know, when you went and performed for the military doing Beyond Glory, has has over time anything developed in terms of your understanding of who these, in general, who mm-hmm. these guys are who commit to do, to uh, well, do this service? Well, I, I, I've spent a lot of time with, with, with the military, all the branches, over the last uh, three or four years. And, uh, and, of course, my uncle, I had a favorite uncle who was an old Marine, and he was just, just one of my favorite guys in the world, Uncle Sonny. And, I, and it was so clear talking to him that the center of his life was his service in World War Two, And he, he really would just kind of sparkle. Now, a lot of guys don't like to talk about it, and there are things that Sonny wouldn't talk about. But but having been a Marine, you know, once a Marine, it just was a it was just huge to him. And he was a, a great favorite of mine. He just passed away last year. Um, there's so much about the uh, the military that that I uh, that I do ad- admire. And a lot of it has is is not so unlike being an actor as strange as that may seem but there's there is a sense of of discipline of of uh, limits that are involved there is uh, there's room to be a maverick but but you know only under certain circumstances it seems to me um the uh the well <laughs> I, I I don't know exactly why, although I can say that when I was growing up and when I think of the things that have had great effect on me, it really was um, uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai, hmm. you know, comes to mind. I think because at its best, there there is such a sacrifice and nobility that is involved. And on the day-to-day level, it's pretty tough. Hmm. I know that. That's why it's great to play <laughs> to be an actor and play military guys and maybe not be in. <laughs> well, playing so many military people, has that uh, been a help or hindrance or had no effect at all on getting other roles? Um, I think it's been, in the end, it, it, it's a help. Uh, it's uh, it, it possibly has cut me out from certain things. I rarely get thought of as a, a lover, you <laughs> know. I mean, what does Richard III say? You know, since I cannot prove a lover, I am determined to prove a villain. Well, I'm not a villain, but I am a play these military guys, I guess. 
since you quote Shakespeare, and as we talk about the rest of your career, I was struck to find that you've been involved in a number of productions of Hamlet over the years. One of your one of your very earliest Broadway credits was was a Hamlet production, uh, which started in Central Park right. uh, with Sam Waterston as Hamlet, and then ultimately in the early '90s you had the opportunity to play Hamlet. Plus, you got to be in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh-huh. or dead. I'm just curious. I mean, obviously, it's a great play, but over the span of the 15-plus years from the time you you were in the Waterston production to playing Hamlet on your own mm-hmm. and exploring different ways, how how your perception of that role changed mm-hmm. and what the opportunities were for you in playing ultimately playing Hamlet? I think that my perception of that role has probably altered more significantly from the time I played Hamlet in 92 till now than it had from uh, working backwards from 92 to, say, 1970 when I really began uh, thinking about about Hamlet. Um, and my own Hamlet, which was, you know, in many quarters quite reviled, which is, you know, not such a, not necessarily a bad response, <laughs> but in any case, it was... Uh, uh, an extremely alienated, extremely uh, bitter, extremely isolated um, Hamlet, it seemed to me, in a very, very cold and uh, a dry, cold world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, and, 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 and what I had gleaned up till then, you know, I was in Sam's Hamlet, which I just didn't, I made so many great friends in that show, saw so many good performances. An extraordinary cast and even extraordinary people when you first did it in the park and then other great people came into it when it moved to the Beaumont. The, the original Gertrude was Ruby D in the park and the original Ophelia was uh, Andrea Marcovici, the wonderful, wonderful chanteuse. And then when we went inside, uh, uh, Jane Alexander was uh, Gertrude and... Um, uh, Maureen Anderman, the wonderful Maureen Anderman, was was Gertrude and Mandy Patinkin was part of it. The great George Hearn was part of John it. John Lithgow. Uh, Johnny Lithgow was he doubled he doubled in the park as Laertes and the Player King, which is a not the of, usual double. No, a very elegant yeah. double. I guess he did, he didn't want to hang around, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, and then uh, and then I had the I went to the Guthrie and I did Horatio to Randall Duck Kim's. Hamlet to Randy Kim's Hamlet, who is a wonderful Shakespearean actor, and then up in um, in Stratford, Connecticut, I Horatioed to Walkins to Chris Walkins' Hamlet, uh, which was a, a fantastic and bizarre experience. You know, <laughs> how do you define bizarre? Well, it, it was a rough show. It was a rough, rough. Show it was not received well, and yeah. it was, but it was. Uh, I wouldn't have traded it for. But again, world. a great cast in in that production well, as this. well. You had Fred Gwynn mm-hmm. as Claudius, Anne and Baxter as Baxter, and Anne, you know, Anne stood about four foot four, and mm-hmm. Fred is about eight feet tall. And I said, <laughs> Anne, huh? isn't it weird for you? And she said, Oh no, no, I get so much light. Uh, I, just <laughs> keep, I just keep my head up and get so much light. But you said something interesting that you think you learned more after you played Hamlet than in all of the years leading up to it in all of the different productions. Mm -hmm. What is it since you've played it that you discovered? I think if I were young and were doing it again, I would probably uh, combine some of the darkness. Uh, I'd find some of the beauty in it, some of the romance of the role, some of the matinee idol in the role, for lack of a better term right now. But the world that I 
that I created and, and that I wanted in that show was a very, very unwelcoming world. And I think that that's, uh, I mean, I think there's plenty of, there, there's plenty of that in the play. <laughs> there's no question. But there's also got to be something. I mean, Hamlet has got to have uh, j- just this tremendous warmth at, at the same time. He can't be. There, there's got to be. He is the flower of youth. I mean, he's got to be everything they say uh, he was. And I think in mine, that was past already. But that's. Uh, and I think that that's something I would, you know, maybe hmm. do, do re- rethink hmm. a little bit. But it was honest. It was an honest Hamlet. Is, is your changing of, uh, of your, your, your outlook on Hamlet also a matter of, of aging yourself, having more life experiences, so you yes. see it different after 1992 than you would have when you were in your 20s or 30s, let's say? I'm just a much more, I'm a, I'm a far more forgiving person, both of yeah. myself and of others as well. I'm just, I'm more benign than, than, than I was. There was something extremely, I think, uh, uh, there was something quite Puritan about my Hamlet. As I recall, I don't know if one. It, it's it's a little hard to talk about your own, mm-hmm. your own, your own work in a way, and uh, because I I, I don't want to unfairly characterize it, you know, one way or the other. I didn't see it; I just did it. Mm-hmm. But it was a great. It it sure was an amazing experience to play it eight times a week. Well, with other amazing experiences, you've had two opportunities, uh, very high-profile opportunities, to work in the plays of Arthur Miller. The mm-hmm. first being the Death of a Salesman revival in 1984, where you played Happy, along with John Malkovich as Biff and Dustin Hoffman as as Willie Loman. Can you talk about that production, which really was sort of revelatory in mm-hmm. its time for for that play? Well, that was a... That was a couple of years of my life, really, because it was we we started work in '03 and we ended up making the film in 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 '85, in, in not '03, '80 '83, and then in in '85. So it was a couple of years. It was uh, it was revelatory to me <laughs> as well. Um, to work with Dustin was an extraordinary opportunity in how to work. Uh, I've always felt that I, I've always characterized him in my mind as the Pete Rose of acting, which is to say that I don't know that Dustin had the most natural talent, has the you know, uh, or, or is, has the most matinee, matinee idol looks, or or any, has the has the most beautiful Barrymore-esque voice or anything like that. But there are few actors, if any who delve as hard and as continuously and as relentlessly as Dustin. And that just just the sheer value of digging was something I learned from him. And he demanded, you know, on a on a daily, uh, on a performance-by-performance performance basis. Rehearsal never ended with Dustin. And that was great fun for me. And, uh, and I think that it, I think it has impacted, you know, informed my own process, certainly. So that, to me, was one of the great lessons of that. What do you mean by rehearsal never ended? Was it a case of every night there were notes and he was coming to talk to you? Or? We did notes. He, uh, Malkovich and myself, did notes every performance at intermission. We would stand in the wings and and we would we would uh, do an assessment. Uh, uh, and also, you you always had the feeling Dusty was taking notes as the show was going, and he was noting himself. 
as well. You know, there was a whole editing process going on uh, with him. It was an extraordinary ability to go as deeply as he, he could go and at the same time kind of keep a critical eye on himself. Uh, Somehow it all can, and, and on us. But you found the process healthy. We often hear about actors, you know, who once the show is up, they kind of want to feel free and just find the performance. And the idea that you were literally analyzing it at intermission but about it was what was free. going on. It was absolutely free. We were not, you know, it's just, hmm, how was that? Did that work? Did you, that was a new thing. Wow, you didn't take the beat there. You know, that was interesting. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it was just, you know, minutiae, the kind of stuff that an audience might not notice uh, the change in, but to us was a paradox. Amount importance somehow. So the show was constantly evolving. Then it I felt like. it was absolutely. I think that anybody in that show would would say it was never a frozen show. Which is not to say it didn't have a consistent, you know, uh, look and feel to it night after night because I think it did. But it really was. Uh, I felt evolving like crazy. That's why it was so difficult to do the film of it because all of a sudden there's this, uh, you know, this kind of onus on you to be. Um, uh, what you know? What's the word? You want to get it uh, when something? I can't remember. Uh, it, it, this is the one. You, you know, wanna, this you, is definitive. Definitive. You want to get it right. <laughs> this is the definitive one. Well, you know, we did it over two hundred plus times, and and each performance was the definitive one for that evening, <laughs> and the mm-hmm. film was the definitive one for that period of weeks that we did the film. Hmm. So w- when you do it then as a film, or you're doing it over a period of weeks or yeah. even months with individual takes of each line, each scene, how does that uh, affect you as an actor? When you're in a play, it's continual straight through beginning to end. You're going mm-hmm. through, you're in the mood, you're in the mind for that, mm-hmm. that performance. In, in the film, when it's all broken up, does that affect your performance? Well, I think it, uh, it, did, it hopefully it does. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of breaking your own performance over your own knee. And, and, and seeing what emerges, what's, uh, what's wholly new and what's wholly different. And things that do work on stage don't necessarily work on film. You know, John Malkovich, had, there was a quietude to his performance which could annoy people on stage because we were trying to fill, we were in the Broadhurst, you know what I mean? And, and, and sometimes there was such serenity and quiet to his performance that people wanted, wanted more, and yet in the film, it's really quite extraordinary how well it works. I, on the other hand, happy, which is, you know, more gregarious role, as it were, a louder role, in, in a way, uh, I had to scale back, you know, in, mm-hmm. in a, a number of ways. So everybody was shifting and changing. I well, think. is that because in the theater you're trying to project to the last row and you have to both vocally and in gestures make things bigger in the theater than you do on film? Well, you do have to do that for sure, but probably, I mean, I would put it in, you know, I'd couch it in terms of the play itself. Biff, you know, Happy's always compensating for Biff, you know, and so I'm like compensating because John is being quiet or something. I mean, I don't know if that's true and I don't, I've never had that thought before, but it's probably, uh, probably operates. Hmm. Yeah. When you next went to Broadway, it was with a play by a completely unknown author who remarkably got what certainly was his first well-known play onto Broadway, and that was A Few Good Men, which slipped in. I mean, at the time, it it wasn't, it didn't have huge stars. Mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin was certainly not the Aaron Sorkin of The West Wing. 
And uh, so, so what was what was that like? Because we have so you you've been lucky. You've actually gotten to create roles in new bro- plays on Broadway. We'll talk about Speed of Darkness in a minute. But but first, few good men creating the part of of Jessup in that. Yeah, I was fortunate to work with. Uh, I think uh, I don't think there's a finer writer in America than Aaron Sorkin. I mean, to me, he is the George Bernard Shaw of our age. And uh, I can explain that, but that's what I feel he is. Um, and to work, and Don Scardino was the perfect director for it. We had a great, you know, we, we had a legendary producer with Bob Whitehead, who I was privileged to do a number of shows with. It was just a really, really fine team. Ben Edwards did the set. David Woolard did the costumes. And then a really spectacular cast of hard work and grunts, it seemed to me. So it was a, it was a pleasure to build that that play and uh you know i was the colonel i was the ranking (laughs) guy there and so uh i could um i really was able to uh uh how should i say it you know control my scenes to the extent i felt i needed to so there was a lot of good work and 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 don was so so gracious in rehearsal to just allow me to go down blind alleys and you know dead ends and and, and and eventually emerge with uh, the role. But, you know, it was there in the writing. Now, let, let's talk about his writing. You compared Aaron Sorkin with George Bernard Shaw, which mm-hmm. is a pretty good comparison. I mean, good in the sense of putting him at that level. Mm-hmm. What is it about his writing that, that intrigues you and makes him so magnificent in, in your mind? Yeah. 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 Well, I think he combines uh, an, absolute, uh, uh, an, an absolute affection for... Mankind with a very, very acerbic take on them. And, uh, and he writes about issues. He writes about great social issues, it seems to me. And he um, and his characters can't wait for the other guy to shut up so that they can talk. They have such strong points of view. And they are, by and large, very, very intelligent characters. But even the ones who aren't, have kind of their own native cunning or their own slyness or their own kind of grit or something. Uh, and so when I read Sorkin, it just, it always reminds me of kind of a contemporary uh, Shaw. You know, I think it's the combination of affection with a- absolute, you know, not disillusionment, but uh, very almost a very jaundiced kind of look mm-hmm. at them. Well, we should say you just worked on uh, the premiere of his newest play. In fact, his his first play, at least that we've seen produced in many years, mm-hmm. the Farnsworth Invention. Is that also the case uh, in that new piece as well? The same spirit. Well, that I think that that that's going to be for theatergoers in New York to discover. But I'll tell you, it is uh, uh, to me, it's just a marvelous play. It's a. Uh, 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 it's it's very touching. It's very funny. It's very dramatic. It's a wonderful story of America, and I think it's a great story of New York, too, in its way. And so that'll be coming in, and I'm uh, I'm cheering for that big time. Well, tell us a little bit more about about the storyline. You said it's a story of, of America. It's a story of the invention of television, which is a subject to which Aaron has a. Uh, return now and again, and uh, and I would say the subsequent, some would say, theft of television by uh, uh, by the first media mogul David Sarnoff. So I portrayed Sarnoff and uh, uh, Jimmy uh, Simpson, an actor Jimmy Simpson, who I didn't know 
pre, prior to this played Philo T. Farnsworth, who really is the father of television. And uh, and it and and, and Aaron uses I, I I probably shouldn't say too much about it, but he uses the the uh, convention of dual narrators and dual unreliable narrators, which is you know it takes a lot of chutzpah I think to do that, and takes a lot of skill to bring off, and he does indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, after Few Good Men, you had on Broadway your Tony-nominated performance in Speed of Darkness, mm-hmm. and again back to this theme of military men you've played, in that case, a former military man, a man very troubled by by what his past was and had really fallen on hard times. Can you talk a little about Speed of Darkness, which I don't think had the run it fully deserved over time, but, but really was... Was was quite a remarkable piece. It was sent to me, and I I knew right away I wanted to play this character Lou in this play, which I thought had uh, uh, had had kind of booming and epic themes to me. To me, it felt it, you know it felt positively Greek. Uh, Steve Tessich, who's who you know the late Steve Tessich died much too young, wrote a raft of fine plays. This, to me, is as fine as any of them. And Steve has such high expectations for this country. He was uh, a bit like Miller. He was was an immigrant himself. So his dream of America was so powerful and so uh, um, uncompromising in a way that if he felt that people were not taking their freedoms seriously enough if 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 the if they were letting down the uh the notion of what america is supposed to be he took great umbrage at that and and he wrote and he wrote about it and um and the speed of darkness is uh as you say i played a i played a, a very broken vet who uh um boy it was a who really goes who who has been through been to hell and really never got back from it and comes to see his friend from the military who has gone on to live uh, a good, uh, wholesome life to all appearances. And it's the, you know, it's the uncovering of dark secrets is what it is. And uh, it just was, it began at the Goodman Theater under Bob Falls' direction. And then um, I had, I I remember I called Whitehead, Bob Whitehead, and I said, you, you need to read this play. And he did, and he called me. He said, Steve, we're going to do this in New York. We're going to do this on Broadway. And and by God, we did <laughs> at the Belasco, which was, uh, you know, had seen better days at that point. It's quite lovely now. <laughs> but uh, we did. We came in, and and Len Carey, who came in and took the, the, uh, the other role. So it was a... Yeah, it was a great experience doing that one. I enjoyed playing that part. Well, we keep mentioning Chicago, and as we skip around among the extraordinary work you've done, mentioned earlier that you've had the opportunity to work twice on major productions of Arthur Miller's work. And I wanted to ask about the experience of working on Finishing the Picture, which ultimately was his final play, but obviously with him in... with. with him in full participation mm-hmm. in that work. Can you can you talk about uh, creating brought, a role? I'm glad you brought that up because I I mean, when looking back, uh, there are a few things that I'm more pleased 
that then I got to reunite with Arthur Miller, uh, and because he didn't live that long after that, and he was so sharp and so uh, beneficent to us. And I, I mean, Arthur Miller has always been a hero of mine, so it was just great to be back with him. The play was amazing. It's I find I used you know I, the character I played, and I blessed Bob Falls for offering it to me because I don't know how many people would have thought of me. I played uh, a character based on Lee Strasberg. Uh, uh, and uh, Linda Lavin played my wife, who is based, of course, on um, Paula Strasberg. And uh, I come in in the second scene. The first scene was an hour-long scene, and you got the likes of Stacy Keach, Francis Fisher, Scott Glenn, Matthew Modine, Linda Lavin uh, on stage, Harris Eulin, really an immensely talented cast. And then second scene comes and there there I am with a fat suit on and I'm bald and uh, uh, it, it basically is the playing out of uh, trying to get a very high pro- profile and troubled movie star out of whom the play who the, who the screenwriter is married to out of bed to finish shooting a film obviously it's inspi- inspired by the misfits and by Marilyn Monroe which seemed to be a great great problem for some of the critics but in any case, I used to watch the first scene every night. I watched it more than the director watched it. And I finally came to realize that Arthur Miller had once again kind of created a whole new form almost, that we got a good percentage of the play, but we didn't get, we didn't get all of it. And it's kind of an existential farce is what the thing is. It's, it's a, it, it is a farce. It, it, it's a world within this hotel in Nevada where which is totally uh, um, self-contained, where madness, the madness of making a movie, is what defines normal. You know, something that you and I sitting outside would think is completely abnormal, and uh, uh, it was just a. I thought it was a terrific, terrific play. Of course, we got we got slapped by one of the major critics and I think that that in itself prohibited it from coming to uh, coming to Broadway I know that that's why it didn't come to Broadway and uh, now I don't know that it will be done again back to uh, military characters mm-hmm. John Patrick Shanley's follow-up to doubt a show called defiance mm-hmm. about uh, an officer uh, defying his superior tell us how you got into that and a little bit more about that I was doing Beyond Glory, actually, uh-huh. in Chicago, and had a call, and so they want you to read this, and I read it, and I said, good play. I don't mm-hmm. want to do a military part right now. And, but uh, they, you know, they just beat up on me for a while, and, you know, eventually I said, well, what, what are you doing? I mean, this is a John Patrick Shanley premiere. It's a great role. And uh, it, all, it took working on the play to realize just how, how smart, what a terrific play it really is. You know, there's a tendency the man had just won the Tony and the Pulitzer the year before with Doubt. And Doubt is is really a wonderful piece of theater. To me, Doubt is a knot that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. There's a simplicity to that play. Defiance is a ball of yarn that you've got to kind of, you know, you're trying to straighten out. It's a much, it's a, it's a thornier play. It seems to me it leaves a lot unanswered or a lot of wondering about what comes next, even right. after the play itself is finished. That's right. Yeah, and so I think that 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 you know, uh, I think that's pretty interesting. But when you really get into that play, boy, every line in there is necessary. 
He's a he's a tremendous writer, very spare writer, John. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit more about about the play for those who may not have seen it. Uh, well, uh, I I played a, a colonel uh, back in the uh, this t- it takes place back in the early seventies at a time when the. Uh, uh, the military was in something of a shambles in this country. Uh, there were two things happening in the Marine Corps. Number one, uh, there, the country was divided uh, by race, and that was having a profound effect within the Corps. And also there were a lot of guys who had returned from deployments in Vietnam who were not mustered out, who were still in. So there was tremendous resentment about that. I mean, there were a lot of incidents uh, in the Corps. At, at that time, indeed, in all the branches, but w- within the course. So it takes place at a time uh, where there's a lot of problems going on. I play uh, the uh, you know commanding officer who really wants to deal with these problems. I set out to do a good thing, <laughs> and in so doing, I uh, step on a nail, quite literally and figuratively, and basically remove uh, uh, my legitimacy as a commander. And uh, and it's known by an un- somebody who's under me, who I'm really promoting as, as a guy, a black, uh, a black uh, captain. And uh, he has no choice but to, uh, to deal with this, to turn, to, to ask me to turn myself in, or, or he will have to turn me in. And the, the offense itself is on some level, it's petty, but on another level, it doesn't matter that it's petty. It has to be dealt with. And uh, so uh, I play a guy who gets put between a, who puts himself between a rock and a hard place and learns a very, very, very tough lesson. As we talk about all of your military roles, we keep hearing titles, captain, colonel, etc. I want, before we finish, to come to another title that you hold, which is co-artistic director of the Actors Studio. Uh-huh. You spoke earlier about the working on the Actors Studio, uh, working at the Actors Studio on Beyond Glory, but I'm wondering what the role of co-artistic director at the Actors Studio means and what does it do for you? Well, uh, for me, I've been somewhat uh, uh, remiss uh, for the last year or so just through sheer, uh, uh, through other work. Uh, I'm blessed, very fortunate to have two other, my, my co-artistic directors are Carlin Glenn and Lee Grant, both of whom I have to say take the lion's share of the responsibility for what, what's getting done there. I just simply haven't been uh, available. Plus we have, uh, of course, Ellen Burstyn, Al Pacino, and Harvey Keitel are our presidents of the studio. So, you know, there people share the burden. But essentially, when, when I'm active, <laughs> uh, and that's the great thing about the studio, it's your home. You can you do you come and go as our, as an artistic director. I think it's a little harder. You need to keep your hand in, and I haven't been as successful as I should be lately. But um, basically, you determine um, you know policy. You determine who is going to do the moderating at session, which really is the heart of what what happens at the actor's studio. It's the you know the process of working on a part. And uh, so you've got people working on a part, you've got uh, the membership sitting there and you've got a moderator. And the moderator will as it were guide the discussion. And uh so that would fall within the artistic director's, you know, uh provenance to 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 determine who does that. And then in terms of sanctioning projects or suggesting maybe 
you want to stop working on this and working on that. Basically, the overall artistic policy. And the actor studio primarily serves its members, those select actors who have been chosen for inclusion. How did you become part of it? I was doing A Streetcar Named Desire in Pittsburgh, and the actor who was playing uh, Pablo, a very fine actor, Lazaro Perez, had been, uh, uh, he came out to play Pablo. And uh, he said, you know, Lang, you're studio. You are studio. So you're going to audition for the studio. So when I went back, and I've always, I'd always liked the studio. Uh, I'd been, or I'd gone there on occasion, watched things. I'd actually studied, you know, with Strasburg briefly. And, uh, but anyway, when, when the production in Pittsburgh was finished, I did a little, I took uh, Camus' Caligula and took a scene and did a, a kind of a, um adaptation of it, and we auditioned with it, and I was uh, accepted into the studio, and so it became my my home. Hmm. You're currently appearing in Beyond Glory, which is a limited run that wraps up in August. What's next for you after that? Well, I, um, I'm going to do a film, uh, and, uh, and, and I really... I, I'm bound by a confidentiality clause, actually, so I can't say more about it than that. Hopefully, it'll be announced in the next uh, couple of days. But I've uh, I've signed on to do to, to go to leave the country and go do a picture. Will you be playing a military person? A former military <laughs> former, person. Okay, can't get away from that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Stephen, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Stephen. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.